questions about the uh, the translation choices and the word uses and those kinds of things. And um, I know, uh, in, in fact, there's a, there, there's an old uh, saying with um, surveys and uh, questionnaires and respondents that for every one person who speaks out, you know, there's a uh, hundred more that had the same idea and just didn't bother to say it. Well, we can't have a hundred more here uh, of several, but anyway, uh, I'm quite sure that if uh, half a dozen or more people have asked me about translations, then there are uh, a number of you that as you've been reading, you've been saying, what? Uh, that's uh, different than I remember it. And um, one of the things that uh, obviously has contributed to that is that uh, for the past 30 years, I have uh, predominantly emphasized, underscored, exclamation pointed, and otherwise highlighted the uh, New American Standard Bible 1995 edition as uh, the, the, the gold standard of translations. And, uh, and you have all faithfully followed me for the most part in that. And uh, thank you so much for that confidence. <laughs> and now I have ruined you. <laughs> and so uh, this morning I want to take a chance to talk about uh, what could be an interesting subject. And I'm going to move this before it stabs me in the back. I can see that coming. Second um, Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Now, it goes on to say that the man of God or the person of God may be uh, equipped, adequately equipped, thoroughly furnished unto every good work. Uh, but I want to really focus on verse 16 this morning. And I, and I want to uh, focus on that uh, phrase, all Scripture is inspired by God. Uh, the, the Greek word behind that is theopneustios, and it literally means God-breathed. And so uh, we begin to ask ourselves immediately, how does God breathe the Scriptures? And we have all kinds of authors. We have uh, um, a, a number of books in the Old and New Testaments, and uh, 66, in fact, we have uh, 40 different authors writing over a, a period of time uh, that probably spans 1,600 or more years. And uh, we, we ask ourselves, they're all different. They're different personalities. They're different people. They're different times. The nuances of language have changed. I mean, just in the last 400 years, we don't speak Elizabethan English any longer. And, and Hebrew, likewise, uh, made some uh, transitions along the time. And so we, you know, we ask ourselves, how is it that God breathed out the Scriptures to all of these people in all of these times and places over this uh, vastly long period to come together in what we call collectively the Bible and to speak to us in that? And that's a part of the mystery of the inspiration, because without violating personality, without violating um, vocabulary, uh, God didn't give people words they didn't know. You know they, they used the ones they knew. 
uh, without violating um, their own writing styles, God nevertheless preserved the uh, outpouring of His Word to them in such a way that as they wrote, they faithfully recorded the words that God uh, wanted down there. And so, uh, we have a phrase that we use in conservative evangelicalism. Um, used to be just plain Christians, but <laughs> that's kind of changed a lot lately. But uh, we believe in what we call verbal plenary inspiration. And what that means is, the verbal refers to every single word. The plenary refers to all of them. It's not just every one, but it's the whole thing. And the inspiration is that God breathed into the whole thing His Word. Now, those of you who know me, and have known me for a long time, know that I am one of the most uh, vocal, ardent, passionate supporters of verbal plenary inspiration and biblical inerrancy that you will ever meet. Um, I'm so conservative, and I'm so tight on this subject, uh, that my shoes squeak when I walk. You know, I just, I refuse to deviate from the line. Um, I, I am holding fast the line. And I have uh, of late uh, kind of engaged the debate on uh, uh, regional and national scale within our own denomination. Not that we've fallen off the wagon, but that uh, I want to make sure we don't. Because there's a lot of discussion and conversation out there uh, that is uh, circulating around the, the veracity, the, the absolute inerrant truthfulness of Scripture. And when you add up verbal plenary inspiration and put it together, you get a text that is without error. And just think about this for a moment because it's logical. If God inspired the Scriptures, God who cannot lie, God who knows everything, God who is all comprehensive and all understanding. God who was there before any of it started and who will be there when as much as we know is all over except those of us who move with Him into eternity. If this God breathed out the Scriptures, do you think He could make a mistake? And the answer is, of course not. The Scripture is absolutely without error. And so we use a term called inerrancy, meaning it has no error. However, (laughs) there's a little bit of a problem here. And that problem is that inerrancy only applies to the original autographs. You say, what's an autograph? Well, that's the very document that Paul or Luke or Mark themselves actually penned. It's the one that Isaiah himself or his secretary, his amanuensis, actually wrote on. And that is the original document. And the problem is, 
Guess what? We don't have any of them. Do you know why? They were written on skins and parchment and deteriorating organic substances that have long since, in one way or another, rotted away. I'm supposing that, uh, you know, we might someday stumble upon one and we might not even know it because it probably would not be complete. Uh, it would probably be a piece that survived the decay. And, and the reality is, is that we do not have any of the originals. So a lot of people make fun of us hyper-conservatives <laughs> and say, what are you talking about? How can you say you believe in inerrancy and you don't even have the documents? I mean, come on. You can't even point to one and say, this is it. And so that's a very legitimate question. And we have to answer that question. And fortunately, there is a great answer for that question. And that is in what we call the manuscript evidence. Are any of you getting tired yet? <laughs> I just want to make sure that glassy stare is, the, you know, that you're awake back there. Um, we talk about manuscript evidence, and here's a fascinating thing. Regarding the biblical documents, and especially the New Testament documents, we have more manuscript evidence of the original writings, that is, copies, than any other writing of antiquity. Homer's writings, the Greek philosophers, we have more evidentiary documents and, and manuscripts and fragments by thousands than any other document of antiquity. And yet, people swallow those uh, writings and literature hook, line, and sinker without a question. And when it comes to the Scripture, they raise all kinds of issues. So, I want to do something very practical this morning. I see most of you have pens. Uh, I have a slide that's going to come up, and it has 13 words in it. And I want to demonstrate something to you. Uh, I've talked about this for decades, and I've never actually done it. So, so here goes. This is our, this is our first uh, foray into this practical exper experiment. Uh, here's the beginning of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Thirteen words. Here's what I want you to do. Here's your assignment. Right now. You ready? I want you to copy that sentence. But don't do it yet. I have an instruction. I want you to intentionally make two mistakes. I want you to intentionally make two errors. can't use the first word and you can't use the last word because that's too obvious. But once you get into the text, intentionally write the wrong word in two different places. Ready? Go. We're about to find out if my hypothetical analogy has any basis in truth. <laughs> With fear and trepidation. <laughs> okay, you ready? You may have you written your sentence? You got two mistakes? 
All right. How many of you, we're going to skip the first and the last, how many of you for word number two wrote the word God? Let me see your hands. How many of you wrote something else? Okay. What word do you think is in the original? Three other people out of the rest had something else. Hmm? It's God, isn't it? Okay. How about number three? How many of you wrote the word so? Okay. How many of you wrote something else? Oh, that's a little closer. Um, Let me ask you a question. How important is the word so in this sentence? But if you went by the majority text, let's see your hands again if you wrote so. And if you wrote something else. Uh, I think the so's still have it, okay? How about number four? How many of you wrote the word loved? Okay, a lot of you wrote loved. How many of you wrote something else? Okay, I think the loves have it. Uh, How about the, number five? How many of you wrote the? And how many of you wrote something else? Okay, a few of you. All right, I'm not going to keep one here. I, I, I think that's enough to make the point. This is what's called the process of textual criticism. Now, I didn't use the word criticism uh, originally. Um, I used textual analysis because every time you hear the word criticism, people get all excited in a negative way. But, but this is the process by which scholars go about trying to determine what was the original word. And if you can imagine taking not just 85 or 90 manuscripts, but let's take 5,000 and stack them up and drill through them word for word, and you look to see which is the oldest, which is the clearest, which has the most to it, um, and you start to look and say, what word seems to be the word that consistently arises in the copies that points to the underlying original word. And I can pretty well guarantee you that on that basis, we can discover what the original Greek or Hebrew, or in some cases Aramaic text, actually said. We can find the original word. So we don't have to have the autograph because we have thousands of manuscript pieces and and sometimes whole manuscripts that testify to those words in such a way that we can drill down and discover them. And by the way, you pointed out accidentally something very important. What was the most debated word of all of them? So. And so isn't a very important word in this sentence, is it? Now, as a preacher, I might make a lot out of it uh, because it happens to be a very, a very significant emotive term. So loved God the world. I mean, I can preach that, you know, because he he so loved. But the reality is that if you take that word out, you have not changed the meaning of that verse hardly at all. You just took out an emotive term, but you didn't change the fact. And that's the truth of Scripture. The ones that are 
still up for grabs. Uh, don't know. It's kind of on the fence. Are not significant words. In fact, the lesson is that there is not one single point of doctrine that is altered by any questionable word in the textual analysis. It doesn't change any of the basic meaning of Scripture in, in, in any way that makes a difference in a major point of doctrine. There's kind of a lesson from the Dead Sea, and, and this is another thing that I wanted to highlight for you this morning, because this is kind of interesting. There's a lesson from the Dead Sea Scrolls that we need to take to heart. I ask you to intentionally make two mistakes. Do you think those scribes that copied the Scripture were trying to make errors? Well, let me tell you about a Jewish scribe. His assignment was to faithfully copy a scroll that was beginning to show signs of age and deterioration. And so here's how he would go about it. The scrolls in those times were written in columns. And he would count the number of letters in the column across. And then he would count the number of letters going down. And he would count the number of lines. And he would create this mathematical analysis of the column. And then he would very carefully pin those letters. And to be a scribe, you had to be a bit OCD. In fact, you had to be a lot OCD, obsessive compulsive. Uh, you, you had to be uh, a real fanatic about perfection. Because, as a scribe, you were permitted three corrections. So, so in other words, you could rub out a, an error. Maybe you got a jot instead of a tittle. <laughs> you could rub out that error and you could fix it. But when you got to the third one, you had to burn the scroll you were working on and start over. And then they checked each other and they proofed it and they double proofed it. This is amazing because they went to great pains to protect the integrity of the text. It was sacred to them. It was so important. Now, then those wonderful scribes, all uh, textual scholars love them dearly for this, they treated the old, worn-out scrolls like we do old, worn-out American flags. They burned them. When they were through copying them, they destroyed them because they did not want them to in any way be treated with a lack of reverence. So now what? All you have going forward are the new ones. And you say, well, what came before? I don't know. Well, the reality is in the Old Testament, the, the closest we could get to the original authors of the Old Testament was the Masoretic text that was written about a thousand years ago. So we were a thousand to, to 1,500 years from the original writing. And you say, oh my goodness. And we didn't have anything in between. How can we figure this out? 
Well, one day, and perhaps you've heard this story, uh, there was the, the display of the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, down uh, in, in Chicago not too many years ago. But one day, uh, a boy was out playing. You know how boys will be. They were throwing rocks, and he threw a rock into a cave and broke a pot. And he kind of heard the sound. He thought, I wonder what that was. So he went to investigate, and he discovered that this cave was actually a library storage. And there were all kind of clay pots, and in the pots were rolls of writings of scrolls. And he at least had the presence of mind to recognize this is something important. So eventually, uh, through the village elders and eventually the archaeologists got involved, and they discovered the greatest find of ancient biblical text in history. And one of the things that they discovered was a complete scroll of Isaiah. This scroll of Isaiah was at least 1,200 years earlier than the Masoretic text. And when they compared it to the Masoretic text, there were virtually zero differences. They were that careful in recording the scriptures. And for those that wonder how many Isaiahs there really were, and if that argument's lost on you, just ignore it. But Isaiah chapter 40 begins the first two lines at the bottom of the column where 39 ends. A seamless whole. I mean, they didn't even bother to start a new column like there was another author here. It was Isaiah who, who wrote the book of Isaiah, or his secretary put it together. And so, the confidence that we can have in the original text of Scripture is as high as it can possibly be. And we can look at that and say, these are the words of God. Now, translations are a little bit of a different story. And the problem with translations is, you have to move the meaning from one language to another. For example, in, in Spanish... If you want to talk about a big table, you say mesa grande. If you want to talk about it in English, you say big table. We put the adjective in front of the noun. In Spanish, that phrase puts it after the noun. So automatically, you can't do a word-for-word rendition. In fact, when you get to translations, you have to decide ahead of time, okay, how am I going to translate this? Am I going to do word for word? And is it going to be a paraphrase like uh, the old good news for modern man? That sounds weird, doesn't it? Well, anyway, it was good news for modern man, but it's old because it's almost as old as I am. Uh, Is it a paraphrase? Is it dynamic? Uh, A a dynamic translation is kind of like this. I mean, if you're in the Balim Valley um, of Indonesia and uh, they don't eat bread, it, it doesn't. Uh, it's not very illuminating to them to say, I am the bread of life. But their principal starch is sweet potato. So guess what the missionaries did? (laughs) Jesus said, I am the sweet potato of life. That's a dynamic translation in in a large extent, because you you can't say, I'm the bread of life. They don't know what bread is. They eat sweet potatoes and pigs. 
And that's a little hard too, because he's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, and pigs are bad things in the Scriptures as a rule. And so uh, you're faced with those kinds of conundrums. But then you have to say, what language am I going into? What reading level is this going to be? Uh, what is the common vernacular? How, how am I going to do the sentence structure? Now, I made a slide for you that shows the, the original Greek of John 3.16 and a literal word-for-word translation. And I know you can't see that very well, so I took the time to put another slide here is a word-for-word word translation from the original Greek. Could I get that next slide? Thus, for he is loving the God, the world, so that the Son of himself, the only begotten, he to give, in order that all the to have faith in, into him, not to destroy, but to have life eternal. That is a word-for-word word translation from the Greek. How many of you would like to read your Bible if it read like that? You have a problem? How long do you think it would take to read your daily Bible reading right now? <laughs> Count on uh, starting before breakfast and taking off to lunch, maybe? It, you, you can't do that. Because not only is that awkward and stilted and frustrating... But when you've finished about ten verses, you don't know what you've read. Because it's like, wow, how can I make sense out of that? That is so confusing. So, the translator's problem is, how can I faithfully communicate the original words in the different language in a way that people can understand it and, and, and read it naturally? And so, I've given you an example in Isaiah 40.31. Notice that in Isaiah 40.31, the very familiar King James passage says, But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength, they shall mount up with wings as eagles, they shall run and not be weary, they shall walk and not faint. You can tell which version I memorized, can't you? God gave me that verse when I was 12 years old, as I was facing my first heart surgery to fix my aorta. And I didn't know if I was going to come out of that one or not, because in those days, 1965, that was the new surgery. The mortality rate was quite high, and the way they handled it was very different. And, uh, you know, I, uh, I couldn't do anything for a year afterward. That was full physical restriction for one year. And so I was praying one time with my mom and asking God for some guidance and comfort. And he gave me this passage from Isaiah. It's a marvelous passage. And I memorized it. And uh, when I went into surgery, I, I know it must have uh, potentially frustrated the people in the OR uh, because they took everything else from me, everything else from me, but I kept my Bible. And I was wheeled into surgery with my Bible, clutching it against my chest, and uh, hanging on to Isaiah uh, 4031, that I was going to come out of that with renewed strength, and that God was going to meet me in that. So, that's a very precious verse to me. And notice some, so the way it says, They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. 
The New American Standard Bible, 1995, says, Yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. Isn't that kind of like renew? New strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Now, the issue with tired and weary in those verses is that the Hebrew words are so much alike that you can translate either one of them either way. You just kind of have to work into the the, the context of the sentence. And actually, the New American Standard Bible, 1995, happens to be as close, probably, as you can get to the precise Hebrew of this passage. Notice how the New International Version translates it. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. What's the difference between waiting and hoping? If you're waiting for the train, what are you hoping for? The train to come, aren't you? If you're waiting for the doctor, what are you hoping for? That you can get to see him or her, right? We often are hoping for what we're waiting But in Scripture, the uniqueness of the word wait with reference to God is always an active verb. It doesn't mean we're passively sitting like a lump. It means we're actively expecting something from God. And what conveys that sense better? To wait... You often envision yourself in the waiting room. Or to hope. Well, you pick. But either word is justice to the original concept. But you don't have to explain hope as much as you have to explain wait. Kind of interesting. And which in our usage, inspires you more to mount up with wings or to soar with wings like the eagles? You see, sometimes as a translator, you kind of have to say, okay, what best conveys the meaning? And Isaiah wanted us to know that those who hope in the Lord will soar on wings like eagles. That, that's the essence of the passage. And so, the key question that a translator has to ask is, what translation best conveys the exact thought and intent of the original words and sentences to the average reader into whose language it is translated? Now, I just want to say a few words about translations, if you have quality translations, and I'm just going to pick this morning the 
New American Standard Bible and the New International Version because both of them have these common characteristics. They are comprised of a team, and that team is made up of original language scholars from various denominations. They throw Calvinists and Wesleyans and Pentecostals and hyper-conservatives and cessationists, and they put, they put them all together so that they'll keep each other honest. Because, frankly, if you're a Presbyterian, you can make some verses sound very Calvinistic. And if you're a Wesleyan, you can make some verses sound very Arminian if you just nudge them a little bit. So they, they throw people together who have differing theological persuasions so that they'll keep each other honest and just put the straight word out there. And then they require them to sign a statement that says, we believe this is a sacred book authored by God, fully inspired, without error, and we will treat it with that reverence and respect so as not to change the meaning in any way. So when you take a team of scholars who are committed to the inerrancy of Scripture, and you mix them up theologically, and you ask them to render a translation, good things come out of it. It's not one person trying to get it right. It's a team bringing their backgrounds together to keep each other honest and to get it right. I want to bring this up this morning, because I know as you're reading, you're coming across some different things, and uh, there's a temptation, and I want us to be careful to avoid that temptation. It comes from 2 Timothy 2.14, remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. We have to take care that we don't make mountains out of molehills. And uh, i got to tell you, I'm having the most fun reading the New Testament without the chapters and verses, and in this translation that is new to me. I don't read NIV all the time. I read the NASB. It's new to me. And um, I just find it so exciting. I'm, I'm seeing things I haven't seen before because it's coming at me a little differently. And it's coming in a flow that I seldom experience. There's no breaks in the thought interrupted by numbers in the text. And, and, and I just, I'm seeing new things, and I'm finding it fascinating. And I hope you will, too. And, and I hope that when we're done, that uh, you will have a great appreciation of the New Testament Scriptures. And I hope that when we're done, uh, you will have a better understanding, especially this morning, about how in the world did we get our Bible, and what is the translation all about, and uh, what, uh, 
what are these autograph things and, uh, you know, did some famous person sign them or what's the deal? And uh, how does that work together? And But most especially that we value the Word of God. Um, there's a time to fuss over a word. <laughs> you want to deny the resurrection of Jesus, well, we better have some arguments. Um, but there's a time to just enjoy the Word and let God speak to us. And uh, that's really fun. And, and I hope this has been illuminating for you. I, I don't often take the Sunday morning time to turn it into um, uh, Bibliology 101. Uh, but sometimes that's uh, useful, and I hope it's been useful for you today. Father, thank you that you have guarded your word. Thank you that in times past, I think of uh, William Tyndale, and I think of others who, even many who gave their lives to give us the word in our language, 